1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Personal Best podcast with me, Ruby Lola. My guest today is Michelle Carroll. She is an online coach and body image researcher. And in this conversation, we discuss what is body dysmorphia, how does it affect men as well as women, how to improve your relationship with your body and with food, the role that social media plays in all of this. And Michelle also shares some really brilliant advice that I think will help you along your fitness journey. Unfortunately, we had some technical difficulties during this episode, so I apologize for any changes in audio quality that you might hear or any glitches throughout. But anyway, I really hope you enjoy this conversation because Michelle was such a great guest. So let's get on with the episode. Michelle, welcome to the Personal Best podcast. Thank you for having me. So why did you start researching disordered eating and body image in the fitness industry?
0: Yeah, so I'm a nutritionist and an online coach and a radiographer. So I studied radiography at University College Dublin and I've been a radiographer for the last six years I've also been a personal trainer and an online coach for three years. So I studied personal training at National Training Centre in Dublin, and then I did my master's in sports and exercise nutrition through ATU in Sligo in Ireland, which I finished in 2022. And then in September, I'm going to be starting a PhD in clinical psychology, which is going to look at body image and disordered eating in fitness professionals. So that's probably why I've made that my entire online personality. So
1: what is... Body dysmorphia. Let's talk about that.
0: So body dysmorphia is a pathological obsession about your appearance, or it can be like certain parts of your body. So it's actually a psychiatric condition or a psychological condition. So it's diagnosable in this book called the DSM. So these are like specific diagnostic criteria. So this is like, you know, worrying about your appearance or how your body looks. Your perception of that is warped and it really impacts your daily life. So, you know, like you get people that be like. The outcomes for them are really, really awful because it's extreme pathological accept or obsession, Do you know, like these people have high rates of depression, anxiety, suicide. It's not a case of like, oh, I don't really like how my stomach looks and that it's like I, my stomach looks disgusting all the time. It's all I can think about. I can't think of anything else. And the outcomes for that are really, really bad. And they are actually pretty much equal between men and women. The outcomes from body dysmorphia. So a lot of people just assume that it's, it actually affects women more, but it's the exact same between men and women. The impact is the same. And in fact, in some cases, men are more likely to kind of get these engage in these pathological behaviors to kind of quote, unquote, fix things. So this is, you know, engaging in dangerous anabolic steroid use, overtraining in the gym, these horrendous diets that are basically just like all protein, and no will to live. So that kind of thing is really, really dangerous. Um, so I don't really deal with that um because that's I think I feel a little bit outside of my scope of practice. So I deal a little bit more with trying to heat trying not as heal, I think is the wrong word, but try to try to better people's body image and their body satisfaction. So body dissatisfaction and poor body image is different from body dysmorphia, but they form a part of body dysmorphia disorder, but it's not. I don't have the expertise. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a trained therapist. I cannot treat body dysmorphia, but I can help people before it gets to that point whilst being aware of if it does shift towards this complete pathological takeover, that that's when I need to refer people on and kind of step outside of that.
1: I think it's interesting because body dysmorphia is a term that I've heard of. I think it gets thrown around social media and people use a clinical term to describe something that, as you said, is just dissatisfaction with the way you look, or maybe you're having a bad body image day. And so I think it is very important to draw a distinction between that side of it and then just general body dissatisfaction. So as a coach, how do you help people feel better in themselves? Is it better to focus on the outward appearance first? Or do you think that it takes a bit of more deeper work for people to feel more content with themselves?
0: Um, I think it's probably a bit of both. And I think think it's very client dependent. I think you kind of have to meet people halfway. Like a lot of people will come to me and say, you know, if if I could just lose X amount or if I could look X way, I would be finished. I'd be better. And it takes like I'm not straight away going to be like, yeah, we're not going to do that because you should just love yourself always. Because I don't think that's actually helpful for people. And you will get a lot of no one's going to work with you (laughs) if you don't even listen to them. So I think for the most part, it's about meeting people halfway for the most part, what I'll try and do is get them to engage in healthier eating behaviours and they can still have these physique goals, assuming that's something that's health promoting for them and not going to hurt them. Do you know, like if someone's coming to me and saying I want to be absolutely shredded for the summer and summer six weeks away, that's not something I'm going to engage with. Um, but I will try and get them to do behaviours. I think that can be in alignment with that so you know if if clients want to track calories and I think that's an appropriate method for them I think that's going to be helpful for them and not going to hurt their relationship with food we'll also add in some kind of body image promoting behaviors so you know they might track this and then beside that I'll get them to track something that is entirely non-aesthetic focused beside that so like what was what's one thing that you did to support your do you know like you didn't want to go outside or But I went out for a walk anyway. I really wasn't motivated, but I had an extra portion of fruit and veg at my dinner. So people can clearly see that health isn't just hitting these macros, hitting your quote unquote physique goals, that you can have a broad picture of health that does incorporate your body, but your body isn't the sole marker of that. And I think it's hard to get people to buy into that because everyone wants to believe, because we've been sold this idea that calories in, calories out fixes everything, that it's just about a calorie deficit. And that is true if weight loss is your goal, but if living a life that's in alignment with your goals and your values and you care about actual health like health isn't just a body fat percentage so i think that's something i would encourage my clients to engage in those kind of body image promoting behaviors and it does come down to challenging behaviors i think because a lot of us have these held these long-held beliefs that we've had for years and you're not going to get rid of those in a week six weeks like you know i have clients working with me for months and we're still trying to challenge these behaviors And I think it comes down to managing people's expectations. You know, you're not going to unlearn these behaviours overnight. So you need to be kind to yourself while we are developing and working and challenging these behaviours as well.
1: That sounds like a really great approach. And I think it probably is important to kind of find that balance between, yes, you can have aesthetic goals because we all want to feel a bit better and look a bit better. But you also need to challenge those intrusive thoughts that come in, because often Uh, We do lie to ourselves, and just from my own experience, you know, I have good body image days. I have bad body image days, and I remember when I lived in—this is a random story—but when I lived in France for a bit, I had this tiny little apartment room, and it didn't have a full-length mirror. It literally, my mirror was the size of like an A4 piece of paper, so I wasn't able to body check at all. I didn't even see how I looked. And I remember it was almost quite freeing that I wasn't constantly looking in the mirror every day. And also, I was eating a lot of cheese and cake and wine. So I wasn't in the best physical shape, but I didn't mind. Whereas then, when you are in a normal environment and you see yourself every day, it's so easy to start like picking apart yourself. You know, we're so mean to ourselves that I think. It's just become normal and we just accept that and we just listen to that voice and we allow it to run wild. Whereas actually, if, like you said, you can start implementing some of those behaviours, challenging some of those thoughts, maybe we could have a better relationship with our bodies. Hopefully.
0: Definitely. And I definitely think it comes down to not. I don't think that like the goal of good body image or even positive body image isn't to like your appearance all the time. So it comes down to this idea of body image flexibility, because you will experience bad thoughts about your body, no matter how confident you are or how much body image work that you do. Those thoughts are always going to be there, but you challenge yourself insofar as how much they affect you. So body image flexibility. So the goal of that is you can accept that there's days where you're like, oh, I feel terrible. I look disgusting, whatever. But it doesn't stop you living your life. You're still like, okay, there's a part of me that thinks that but I don't have to act on this. I don't have to not go out now because I look a certain way. I don't have to start a diet tomorrow. I don't have to go to the gym because I feel terrible like this. <laughs> like when I was in college, if we were going out that night, we'd never eat any bread because we had like, it was those horrific body con dresses that suited nobody. Like you're know, like those like fast fashion bed sheet kind of things. Like they were built for nobody's body type. So you couldn't eat for, I'd say the week before, because if your body even got a whiff, of carbohydrates you were just like oh I feel pregnant you know and that was kind of the culture that everybody did Um, so that kind of thing you know like you don't have to live your life like that you know and I think encouraging people I think that's how you get buy-in from people but you'll also get rebuttal from or people will be kind of hesitant to work in that you're like wait so I can work my body image but I'll never get to a point where I never experience those negative thoughts and you're like yep and they're like oh <laughs> So I think promoting, but that kind of flexibility, I think is a lot more realistic for people. And I think it does allow you to live a healthier life because like anything else in life, you can't stop bad things or bad thoughts from happening to you, but you can control how you respond to them, I suppose.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because you can't stop that critical voice. And it would be interesting from a psychological perspective to know why that even exists in the first place like why can't we just all love ourselves all the time but you know it's there and it's not going away so I think that acceptance is really important and for myself I've noticed that I know you did a post about it on Instagram how the menstrual cycle can affect your body perception and I would go through these monthly cycles of in the lead up to my period and on my period I would just feel bloated and heavy and Honestly, I would then think, oh, I need to go on a diet and then give it a few days a week. I think, oh, you know, I look good. I feel good. And then I did a bit more research into the menstrual cycle and I learned that actually it's normal for our bodies to fluctuate. And just because you might feel a bit heavier on one day doesn't mean you've suddenly put on a load of weight. And actually, it's fine. Like just chuck on a baggy T-shirt and go to the gym. It's fine. And so I think
0: it's important yeah, I think people dressing. like especially that study where it's like people's body image was actually worse and they're like, oh, I feel a huge, I feel enormous. And they actually measured and weighed people throughout the menstrual cycle. And at the time where they felt the most bloated, heavy, whatever, their measurements actually didn't change significantly throughout the cycle. So people, people still felt terrible. So I think it just goes to show you as well, that body image doesn't necessarily discriminate based on size or body fat percentage. You know, you can still experience that inter-individual variation. So while physically, you might not have the data to suggest that this could be why you feel this way. Mentally, there's still a pressure there and there's still an expectation there that's heightened potentially around PMS and bloating. So that's still there. So while you may not necessarily have physical evidence of it, you still have the mental evidence in your head of being like, I feel horrible.
1: Yeah, that's so interesting that the metrics don't back up what your brain is telling you. And I think something else that's so key to this discussion is it's everything is so relative. And I think On the whole, I'm very happy with the way that I look. But if I ever complain to one of my friends about something, I think it's so easy for people to say, oh, shut up, you look fine. Like, what are you worrying about? But actually, people's hang-ups about their own body are so relative to them. And it doesn't matter if you're in a bigger body or a smaller body, because you are the one that's scrutinising yourself. Nobody is looking at your body in as much detail as you are. You know, with my friends, I don't ever look at them and think, oh, Bella looks a bit this, Jane looks a bit that, like, I just think they're gorgeous all the time, you know, nobody actually is going to pick apart your body in the same way that you do.
0: No, I always like to use this metaphor of, like, being a drunk girl in the bathroom, like, that's how you should speak to yourself, like, how you speak about your friends, like, you know, like, when it comes to, like, my friends, I was like, you look so good, you look amazing, oh my god, like, dump him, you can do so much better, like, you're the best person I've ever met, and then when it comes to yourself, everyone's just like, radio silence (laughs) you're like the girl that's getting kicked out instead
1: yeah I I walked into a girl's bathroom the other day in a bar and I was wearing like a short dress and heels and this girl was like you work out don't you like you look like you go to the gym and I was like that is the nicest thing you could have said like
0: it's the most positive environment um okay so
1: that's body dysmorphia or body dissatisfaction um have you looked much into muscle dysmorphia in men i know you touched on it earlier that they can also suffer with like these body dysmorphic habits and traits
0: yes so muscle dysmorphia in men it basically comes down to to, with women there's this there's between the two genders obviously there is this idea of a body ideal. So this is the ideal physique that you should aspire towards. So with women historically, that has been this kind of thin ideal. So really low body fat percentage. There's not too much focus on muscle. It's just generally about being skinny. Um And when it comes to men then, so the male presentation of that is this, Male or the muscular ideal is male. So it's a low body fat percentage, yes, but it's also at the same time increased muscularity. So we've kind of missed the re- missed the mark in research with a lot of body image research because for so long people only assumed that it happened to women. So I think as a result, we've kind of missed the mark and we've missed a huge chunk of male body dissatisfaction research. And we've kind of caught up now in that when we kind of match the male ideal to the female ideal, that it does affect men just as badly. Um, So, yeah, so it can lead to men engaging in disordered eating behaviors. So, this is things like, you know, like men will engage in these high protein blah, like get shredded, like Chris Hemsler did for this role kind of thing. And it can actually affect men just as badly, only there isn't a culture for men to come and talk to people about it, you know, which is me just as detrimental.
1: Yeah, I think it's important not to leave that out of the conversation. And I guess it's tricky because with muscle dysmorphia or bigorexia, as I've heard it be called, Um, socially, uh, it's rewarded in the sense that, you know, you look big, you look jacked, you've got muscles, like your mates are going to tell you you look good, your girls are going to give you attention, like, you're going to feel that validation. But actually, when it's detrimental to your mental health, and there's like a certain preoccupation with being muscular and leanly muscular, and it's impairing your day to day life that's a pretty miserable way to live.
0: And also, as long as you hinge your entire happiness or your well-being or your metrics of success based on how jacked you are, or how your appearance looks, I think you'll always suffer because the older you get, the harder that kind of thing is to maintain. Mm. Do you know, like if you built your, if you have this kind of conditional happiness that, you know, like I'm only happy if I have abs or, you know, if I have huge glutes or whatever, and life happens, you're not very resistant to the challenges of life. It doesn't really... Foster a culture where happiness is easily created and cultivated because you can so easily lose that, the older you get and the more responsibilities that you have. you so know like it, yes, it probably is easier to stay in shape if you're eighteen, you' have no other responsibilities and you can afford to go to the gym for two hours a day, five days a week. But what happens when you can't? you know, and as long as you've built you, or you set these standards for yourself, the goalposts will always move, and bodies do change naturally over time. So you've literally set yourself up for failure there because the goalposts always move.
1: Yeah, I heard um, the researcher, Scott Griffiths, who looks into muscle dysmorphia, particularly the question he gives his clients is, okay, if you couldn't go to the gym for two weeks, how would you feel? And for most people that have got a healthy relationship with food and training, it would just be a minor annoyance. It would be inconvenient. Um, whereas for people who are displaying more pathological symptoms, they would, you know, feel majorly distressed. They think they'd lose all their muscles. They'd lose all their gains. Um, and so it's a pretty good like benchmark just to kind of work out where you're at in terms of your view on your body. It's so interesting because I have had an ex-boyfriend who was in good physical shape, but he, and I think it's a probably similar story to a lot of boys, was quite a skinny teenager. And then he would bulked up and he had this size and he was so scared of losing that. Like even when we were going on a long backpacking trip, he was like, oh my gosh, I don't want to lose any weight, you know? And so it's just a different preoccupation in the same way that women typically want to be thinner and smaller. A lot of these gym guys are obsessed with being muscular and big. It's just the same but different, I think. <laughs>
0: the same thought of eating in a different font. <laughs> oh, <okay.
1: laughs> Basically. okay. so um, let's move on then to talk about disordered eating and eating disorders. Can I just ask you to quickly explain the difference between the two just so we're not going to get confused?
0: Yes, so you'll see people use the two terms, I think, interchangeably on social media in particular. Um, But I think it's really important to clarify the difference between the two because they are completely different. So eating disorders are clinical eating disorders. So there's specific diagnostic criteria that individuals need to meet for them to be diagnosed with an eating disorder. So treating and working with people with eating disorders should only be done by clinicians. Um, So disordered eating is a little bit different. So disordered eating isn't clinically diagnosed. Um, disordered eating, there's kind of a lot of loose definitions, but basically it's unhealthy attitude to diet and exercise behaviors. And it does not incorporate body image. So disordered eating habits and behaviors incorporate parts of many eating disorders, because, again, their eating patterns are disordered, but the two aren't used interchangeably. So you can have disordered eating and not have a clinical eating disorder. So this is kind of a bit of a gray area. And then within disordered eating, which makes it such a challenge to treat, disordered eating exists on a spectrum. So you have lower risk behaviors. And then the higher the closer you get towards disorder or the closer you get towards eating disorders, the higher risk these behaviors for development of eating disorders. So this is things like using laxatives, over-exercising to almost kind of like purge yourself of like bad behavior. So these are really, really high-risk behaviors. And then you have middle gray area of disordered eating habits and behaviors where you really need to consider them in the context of an individual so this is things like fasting so people will intermittent fast and that can be fine that can be a, a useful way of them to kind of help regulate their energy intake their appetite versus then people will intermittent fast because they think they're that it's the only way for them to lose weight and that if they eat outside of this they'll immediately gain weight and be horrible and their life will be terrible so intermittent fasting is the same for these two individuals but the attitude and the impact it has on someone's life is completely different. So that's one of the biggest challenges with disordered eating is that we don't specifically have a list of things to say, this is good, this is bad, and this is what we should do about it. So I think this is where good coaching practices, I think, are necessary.
1: I think that's really interesting what you're saying about with disordered eating, it's on a spectrum. Because I've someone that has suffered with disordered eating in the past. And for ages, I was just in denial about it because I thought I don't have anorexia. I don't have bulimia, which are very serious eating disorders that I was aware of. And so I just kind of pushed it to one side and thought, no, this is fine. And then it did get to that point where I thought, no, I need to do something about this to fix my relationship with food because the way I was eating and exercising weren't particularly healthy for me from your research or from working with individuals do you think there's any particular risk factors for disordered eating i guess i mean are there any like precursors that you've noticed or could
2: it just be completely random ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby
0: um so it is random insofar as you can't really say oh just because you have x factor you will get disordered eating but there is a whole host of modifiable so these are things that you can kind of control and non-modifiable so if you have a family history of dieting you're more likely to have disordered eating do you know if you grew up in a house where your mom was like you if you had an almond mom basically. Or, do you know, someone that was always on like the special K diet or you grew up in a household where people were constantly tearing apart their own bodies. They model those behaviours to you. So you're more likely to internalise this belief or, do you know, like if your parents always commented on your body or used or like, did you see the state of her? Do you know that kind of thing? And then you have the media. So, again, the media will model this lean ideal, you know, this idea that you have to be thin, you have to be muscular to be successful. This is what success looks like. This is how you get the girl, the lad or whatever. This is how you become successful you don't really, you can't really control your exposure to that necessarily. And then, so then we have a whole host of modifiable risk factors. So again, this comes down to excessive preoccupation with your appearance. So, you know, like if all you follow on social media is people that are in like this lean, ideal shape, that narrative of, co- it's going to be constantly pushed that you have to look a certain way to be successful. This is what gets engagement. This doesn't, um, and then I suppose dieting is a risk factor for development of disordered eating. Not all diets give you disordered eating, but dieting, because it is an intervention, is not without risk. You can do a diet that is done in a healthy healthy manner that will not be detrimental to your health. But you, we can't just say that everybody that diets won't develop disordered eating because it's just not true. So I think you just really need to be, individuals need to be careful and aware. And that's where I think The importance of having a really good coach comes in because if you have someone that never really challenges you on any of these risk factors, doesn't keep an eye on you, there is high risk there for development of disordered eating because no one is keeping an eye on you. Especially as you go through, the longer you you stay on a diet for, the more challenging it becomes. Especially if you are lowering your calories all the time, and it becomes harder to say no to things all the time. You know, so that can create this internal "I'm not good enough," and if I could just you lose x more amount of weight, I'd be happy. I think you really need a good coach there.
1: I agree. And I think it's sad that it's so prevalent among young girls and women, because I know so many people who've had personal experiences with that. And like you've just listed, there's so many different factors, you know, whether it's your friend group who are constantly commenting on what they're eating and how they look, whether it's social media, because all you're following is super fit, tiny people, or whether it's just external pressures that you've then kind of internalised. And so it then can be quite hard to work out, okay, what's the course of correction for this? How have you helped people heal their relationships with food? What are some habits that people can incorporate, do you think?
0: Um, So I think the biggest thing to do is get people to, first of all, reflect and become aware of these thoughts first because you can't challenge or change what you don't know about so we'll get them to, you know, reflect on their food and their eating behaviors. So before someone works with me, I'll always get them to fill out a food and eating behaviors journal. Where I will get them to record what they eat and then how they feel about it and how it affects them. So that'll be kind of the biggest. You can almost see people's pain points there. Do you know, like if they eat nothing all day and then they just binge eat at night, then because they're so hungry and they feel terrible, they feel disgusting and they need more willpower. That's exactly where, so now we have somewhere where we can intervene. So I think getting people even just to record these behaviours, record their feelings without necessarily intervening, first of all, you literally have a list of things that you can action. And I think that's really helpful for people because they're not just how do I feel better? I feel bad all the time, but that's not helpful to you or to me in terms of guiding people. Um, And then for the most part, I think it comes down to encouraging people. Not necessarily, oh, just stop engaging in these behaviours, because, again, that's not helpful. That's like people are like, oh, just no one's looking at you like you know, when you're trying on clothes in a shop and your mom's like, oh, come on, just put on the jacket. No one's staring at you and you still feel like everybody is. Um. So, again, I think encouraging people to bring in other behaviours. So this is things like body gratitude, you know, like you might still feel uncomfortable in your body, but I'll get people to reflect on things that their body has allowed them to do that day that have nothing to do with their appearance. So, you know, like, were you able to digest all of your food today? Were you able to walk to work, you know, to pick up your kids? You know, these are things that you don't necessarily think of. But when you're lost in this tunnel vision of aesthetics, it's very hard to see life beyond whether your body looks good or bad. So I think these are kind of the behaviours and strategies that I'll get people to do to kind of pull from different directions as opposed to fixating on this thing is bad and we need to stop it because that's very exhausting for people and I don't necessarily think it's helpful because then all you do is focus on this bad behavior and feeling guilty that you're still engaging in it.
1: Yeah I think that sounds like a really great approach you know if you get to the end of your six-week shred but your mental health is on the floor I don't think that's been a successful transformation so I think it's really important like with what you're doing and with other coaches to kind of make sure that people are doing it in the most healthy way for them. And that probably is just taking some of the focus away from aesthetic goals and learning to appreciate other things as well. I wanted to talk about just quickly this move from thinspo to fitspo. So I think I think Thinspo was probably more in the Tumblr era, which was a bit before my time on social media. But it was, you know, from what I've heard, a very quite damaging, quite toxic trend um, with a lot of this, like, pro-Anna stuff and teaching girls to be thin and skinny. And now I think it's moved towards this fitspiration trend, which arguably is better because it's encouraging healthier behaviors and encouraging young women and girls to be strong and healthy. But do you think there's an element of that that still sets unrealistic ideals and puts pressure on people to look a certain way?
0: I definitely think so. And if you look at a lot of the research in around Fitspiration, it's just as damaging. And I think Fitspiration is kind of what fitspiration should be versus what it actually is, is two completely different things like you said the goal of this like fitspiration is that everyone is stronger healthier confident and they can be that at different sizes what it actually is is before and after photos physique updates what i eat in a day you know this kind of savior complex of i was nothing and now i have abs and my life is completely different and again it's just a different body ideal in a different font um And I think it's, I think it's nearly worse because it pretends to help people and it actually doesn't. I don't think it's helpful for people to think that they have to weigh everything for the rest of their lives or that unless you're filming what you eat in the day, beside a shot of your abs or your glutes, that you're absolutely nothing. I think it's incredibly, incredibly damaging. And I think that it still contributes to this appearance focused comparison because fitspiration, I don't think actually is inclusive for anybody. It's just another body ideal. So it's, yes, we want girls to have muscle, but it's just becoming basically a female version of the male muscular ideal. I don't think it's actually helpful for anybody at all. And I do think that if you look into the research, which they've done on these FITSBO posts, that a lot of it is directed again towards women. 70% of FITSBO content is directed for women. And a lot of it isn't verified insofar as a lot of the dietary advice that people will give out, you know, like avoid carbs or you can eat carbs, but only if it's a rest day, or you're trying to, you know, like do a photo shoot or something like that, you need to time things perfectly. I don't think that kind of culture is particularly helpful. And I think a lot of the pushback that you'll get from people is that, oh, but it makes people feel confident. And I get that. But I also think that if the only way you can make people feel confident is by changing your physique, you don't actually give a shit about making people confident at all. You care about people looking better. And I don't think that being fit is a physical representation or I, I don't think it can be distilled down into your physical appearance but I think fitspiration culture because it needs to be a business you know it's the fitness industry not like healthcare you know so there has to be something marketable for that and I think fitspiration keeps the industry small and stops us from actually helping people.
1: I agree definitely and as I've said before I, I definitely exist in this echo chamber of you know, fitness and like fitness influences on social media. And so a lot of the things I see are guided towards this fitspo trend, I suppose. But something I've also noticed is people's obsession with trying to find the thing that's going to make them look like this influencer. And I saw one influencer called Anna Archer, who I've followed for a long time, really like her. And she put this picture up on social media and she had, like, she's in a bikini and her abs look so toned, she looks great. And um she highlighted one of the comments that said, what's your ab routine? And she replied back saying, one, it's genetics. Two, I hadn't really eaten all day because I was at this festival and I'm also in, like, my ovulation phase. So I'm naturally leaner. She was like three. I haven't trained abs in the longest time. I've been focusing on like calisthenics and like strength work. So maybe that's where I've gained a bit of muscle. And I really respected that because clearly what this person wanted was, yeah, I do this 10 minute ab routine every day. And that's how you get shredded. I think I liked that she was just so honest about it because I think the easy thing to do is to sell quick fixes to people who are desperate. And I think as you've explained, that's where it can be quite damaging.
0: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That if everyone liked themselves, the fitness industry would crumble because there's no <laughs> sustainability in that.
1: Everyone's just so happy and spreading <laughs> love and positivity. Um, just in general, I'm interested to know what you think about social media. What role does it play in like people being dissatisfied with their bodies and maybe not having the best approach with food and exercise?
0: um i definitely think that i can definitely exacerbate these behaviors because again you constantly have this benchmark of ideal you only you have unlimited access to people's highlight reels. you know like if you're feeling bad about yourself and you just open up your phone you're only seeing the best things that people are posting regardless of whether they mean that or not and i also think as well the more you engage in that behavior the more the algorithm traps you so whether you like these posts or follow these kind of people the algorithm look at what keeps you on your phone the longest so you may not follow all these fits pages but if you're spending your time scrolling through your explore page and seeing it you're constantly going to be pushed this because the algorithm has created this for you so i think it comes down to people being aware of that that like of course you can follow whoever you want but if you're suffering with your body image or working on your relationship with food following or unfollowing or muting people i think is probably your best friend because you need to control what you're exposed to because you need to protect your own headspace i think it's good for people as well to diversify what they follow so i think what a lot of people do is when they're trying to get healthier is they'll just follow a load of spoke fitspo- people and you know because they like they want to surround themselves with that keep themselves reminded of that but if social media is supposed to be social like your entire social or your entire online personality shouldn't just be the gym because the same way your real world isn't so i think encouraging people to kind of pull in from different areas that even if it's following like a dog account or a meme account or something but just something that isn't just to break up the monotony of abs full day of eating competing photos because there needs to be something else so i think encouraging people to look beyond that and maybe just making themselves aware that constantly exposing yourself to people's Highlight reels or the best version of themselves, even though you know yourself that like, oh, it's only people's highlight reel. But if all you're seeing all the time is these highlight reels, regardless of if there's if there's a disclaimer on them or not, you are going to internalize that and compare your everyday black and white, varying, boring routine to someone's constantly on holidays. You know, I don't think that necessarily is reflective. So I think it's definitely a double edged sword because social media isn't going anywhere, and I I think it can be really helpful but there's also action steps that we can take to kind of make our user experience a bit better, I suppose.
1: Those are really useful tips, I think, because I'm someone that does spend a lot of time on social media, particularly TikTok. So yeah, it might not be filling my brain with endorphins, but I'm still reacting to it in some way. And so then I'm just constantly being shown similar types of videos of, you know, what I eat in a day or whatever it is. And you can't help then, but compare yourself. And I really love the quote that's like, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. So rather than just, you know, looking at other people and think, oh, they went to the gym at 5am, you know, they've had a super clean day of eating, think, oh, yes, I didn't go to the gym, but today I did. Or I pushed myself a little bit more than I did last week. And kind of just setting yourself your own benchmarks, rather than like looking at unrealistic things online perfect so is there anything else you would just like to share um any advice anything you've learned recently
0: I think the best the best advice that I learned was or the kind of the best advice that I was given was that you have to be able to live with the consequences of your own actions and your own choices so you know like so many people will tell you what they think you should do because that's the version of you that they want in their head or that they want for you, you know, be that your parents, your friends, or like, you know, like society or whatever, but no one's going to have to live with the consequences of that as much as you. So I think that is something I think that I found really, really helpful because for so long as a people pleaser and I was like, oh, I'm going to do this because such and such a person thinks I should do this. Even in terms of the gym, you know, like, oh, if I think I have a big, big bone, will I be happy? If I have abs, will I be happy? But I'm the one that has to live with the consequences of that. I'm the one that has to go and you know, go to the gym all the the time, prep my food, say no to all these kind of things. For what? I don't think the consequence or the, I don't think the trade-off for me is worth it because I have to live with the behavior. So I think that is something that I've kind of learned and tried to implement recently, which I have found to be really helpful. It's definitely really hard (laughs) to make decisions for you. Um, But I think just reminding yourself that these, like, I suppose that it is your life and you're the one that has to, like it, you're the main character in your own story like no one else really really cares about you which can be freeing and terrifying. And um, so that's definitely something that I've learned and tried to implement a lot more of especially this year. Um so yeah.
1: I love that. And I saw this post you did on Instagram about feeling like you have to be the fit friend and actually how that's quite restrictive because once you've put yourself into this box it's like okay you've got you're the friend that's going to the gym all the time and That might be rewarded by other people. But what you're saying there is actually you're the one that's got to put in the work. And sometimes that's just not maintainable. And I think, you know, allowing yourself a bit more freedom to, yeah, you can be a fit friend, but you're going to do lots of other things at the same time. And so I really like that. Do you have a mantra or any quote or anything that you would give to help people achieve their personal best?
0: I really like that. And then I also love the Maya Angelou quote that when you know better, you do better. Um, I really like that because I think a lot of people are really hard on themselves for what they sh- what they've done or what they should have done better, or you know, like I should have said no to this, or you know, I should have gone to the gym instead, or I should never have started eating this or done this diet or whatever. But you didn't know any better at the time. Like you can't beat yourself over the head with the knowledge that you have now. Like hindsight is 2020. 20. And I think that's a really nice way for people to reflect on anything that they've done that they're not particularly proud of, or you know, things haven't gone the way that they hoped. I think that is really, really nice. And I just think it's so cute and so helpful.
1: <laughs> mm, thanks for sharing that. No, I agree completely because everyone's an expert in hindsight. And like I wish I hadn't gone through Well, uh, you know, it would have been nice to not have gone through a period of disordered eating and obsessive exercising, but I learned from that. And now hopefully I can share advice and wisdom to people so that they don't have to go through that. So that's really nice. Thank you so much. Um, Where can people go if they want to find you, look at your stuff or inquire about coaching?
0: The best way to get me is probably through Instagram. So that's at Michelle Carroll one or i have a coaching website where i'll post free body image resources or have coaching application form so that's michelle carroll fitness study
1: perfect thank you so much i really enjoyed this conversation and it also helps you have a lovely accent so it's very nice
0: <laughs> to the podcast the first time the irish accent is described as lovely
1: <laughs> i love the irish accent it's one of my favorites mm. especially irish boys it's my uh, weak spot
0: Oh, don't go near them. I'm telling you now, don't. (laughs) That's actually my one piece of advice. Don't go near them.
1: (laughs) Perfect. Okay. Once again, thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Michelle. It was honestly so great to learn from all of her research and take some good advice away too. If you would like to follow this podcast on Spotify, then please do. But anyway, I hope to see you next week for another exciting episode. Bye for now.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,